Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee from the University of Arizona. It's been a while, but today we're here with Drs. Gary Lu and Deming Tao to talk about one of the most exciting books of the year, The Tokugawa World. It was published this year by Routledge. Um, Dr. Gary Lu is a historian of early modern Japan at Tufts University, and Dr. Tao is a historian, uh, historian of Japanese, Japanese thought who actually just retired from Kansai University in Japan. This book is probably by far the most holistic edited volume on Japan's Tokugawa period, which is roughly between 1600 and 1868. With over 60 contributors from all over the world, this book maps out how Tokugawa Japan evolved and transformed from perspectives of physical landscape, economy, art and literature, religion and thought, and education science. So welcome, uh, Gary and Demi. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. My pleasure. <laughs> this is such a huge volume, uh, both in terms of the scope and uh, in the page number, actually. It's probably the thickest book I have ever held that's about to go out of Japan. So how uh, how did this project begin? And what was the process of uh, coming up with this topic, inviting all the writer uh, contributors, and the entire editing process? What was it like? Well, I, I was contacted um, initially by a Routledge editor and asked if I would be interested. And um, yeah, it was. Uh, it is part of a massive series of the world of, or the so-and-so world, the Ottoman world, the Elizabethan world, the Melanesian world now. So it's a pretty comprehensive combination of works. And I thought, well, that's very cool. They're thinking about Tokugawa uh, Japan as a sufficiently important unit of study that they want to commission a book on. So I thought what, um, what uh, Dermin 
Lin has just said it. Um, it's the, the, um, the best thing that's going to appear since the Cambridge vault. So, and it's about time. It's been a generation. Um, so the assignment was basically given to me. Um, and then I was able to decide based on my own sense of perspectives, uh, what to specifically ask, what, what scholars to contact, thinking we really need to have something or we really need to have something on whaling, in part because there's a lot of discussion of whaling in the contemporary world. It's one of the things that people associate. Well, what's the context? So with those kinds of thoughts in mind, I contacted people and I contacted Tao and um, we thought that our combination of connections and skills would be ideal to co-edit the vibe. So that's how it started. Amazing. Dr. Tao, would you like to add anything to that? Yes. I studied with Gary at the Osaka University with Professor Wakita Osamu, who was the leading scholar of Osaka history as well as the Tokugawa period. Uh, Gary then was studying about uh, the uh, Nishijin, the silk industry in Kyoto. And uh, I was focused on the Kaitokudo, the merchant Ruan Confucian Academy. So we had some exchange and became good friends. And later I uh, was able to uh, got a chance to visit <coughs> universities in, in the United States. Also did PD at the Princeton Harbor and then got a job which is close to Tufts University, uh, Bridgewater State, Massachusetts. So we had a long uh, history of personal <laughs> academic contacts and French. I think this, you know, is a base for our working together to finish work. That's this amazing. is true. Although when we first met, I was doing urban labor in the cities, but not yet manufacturing. So I wasn't uh, quite into Nishijin. <laughs> I, I, was er, I was earlier into servants in shops, but Nishijin came later. Oh, but see. labor, you know, it's all, that was my, my main focus. Yeah. Well, it sounds like it was a long time ago, which is why probably um, you have, you are able to uh, gather all the sources that you've accumulated over the years and uh, get this massive book going. So can you talk about the structure of this book and why you decided that there, um, so the book covers 11 themes. Why are these 11 themes the most important? Actually, I think uh, Dermin was the first to propose dividing what we had into meaningful categories. Uh, and they evolved over time because, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, there was some, there was more material available in some fields than in others as a result of how historiography has changed, as a result of how history itself has a history in terms of the issues that compel scholars and are currently significant. For example, I contacted quite a number of U.S. scholars about writing on peasant rebels because there was a time in which everyone was writing about peasants. In the 1970s, 80s, there was a whole slew of stuff. And I, that certainly ref, uh, reflects the impact of the Vietnam War. Um, but, in, you know, now the issues are not so much on, uh, you know, peasant struggles and some other issues that were hitherto popular, but a lot on gender. Um, uh, so it was not difficult at all to find people to write about different aspects, gender, family, uh, childhood. There seems to be an enormous amount of interest in the history of childhood. Um, but, uh, you know, essentially the way we arranged those categories was dependent on what we see. Sometimes I asked for things that, that were not for I wanted something on Wasson at a good math mess. Uh, although uh, most people wouldn't be able to stand, but still it would be nice to, to give credit to that very distinguished scientific tradition separate. But no one uh, would do it. 
or had other commits. So how did we decide on the categorization from your end, German? Yes, uh, as you wrote in the uh, introduction, we have commissioned several articles, right? Especially on the unification in the beginning of the Tokuma period. Mm-hmm. Also the social uh, structure and the peasants' uh, rebellion. Uh, but uh, I, I think uh, in the book, no, frontipiece, there is a kind of description of this volume. Other than the history Tokugawa period, it also, you know, uh, there is a line called the social life and custom. I think uh, it may be a good, you know, description because our volume reflects the recent trends of social history in the Japanese, you know, studies. It covers many aspects of ordinary person and life. And uh, another thing I think is uh, re-evaluation of synology in the Tokugawa period. Uh, in recent uh, decades, uh, about two decades, actually there's a lot of, you know, say, articles in Japan uh, to reassess synology's impact in contemporary time as well as the May- after Meiji Restoration. Uh, partly beginning with a book wrote by Princeton University professor Maris Jensen, China in the Tungawa period. And later on, actually, many, you know, studies appear. And because of my own background, I have many, you know, friends in the Association of Japanese Intellectual History. I invited them to join this project. Uh, to add on to my pre- previous question, um, in these aspects, I do see some um, topics that are not so common, um, not the kind of um, topics you would always see in these kind of overview of the Tokugawa period or even overview of pre-modern Japan sorts of books. So when you came up with these 11 themes and the 60, more than 60 uh, chapters on these aspects, what uh, what topics or what parts did you notice that were missing from the existing scholarships or existing uh, introduction to uh, early modern Japanese history? Well, some of the topics have been covered in Japanese, um, you know, so we can't say they've been entirely ignored. But for example, the question of Africa's people who are described as black in Japan. Um, Fujita Midori wrote a paper in here about that topic. It's published in Japanese. And I accessed her work when I wrote a, an article years ago, Cambridge July, how they received in Japan. But other than that little piece by me, there was nothing available. And I think a lot of people are simply surprised to think, what? Oh, why would that be? And then, of course, it has to do with the Portuguese trade and the Dutch trade. And then it's... Anyway, um, so that's uh, what I perceive to be a gap. And I was delighted uh, Fujita-sensei was real to it. Um, small, uh, you know, a lot of people are very interested in small without realizing that it has a history. And when you do realize it has a history, you see that it goes through uh, a period in which it is commodified like everything else. And the athletes become professional and they travel around in groups. And uh, so one of the themes of the whole work, from my point of view, is commercialization, commodification, so many things, goods and services. And the whaling one, uh, I mentioned, I'm very happy that that appeared. Um, there's a paper on the issue of um, untouchable status and the applications of their labor power to different things. Um, but that perhaps would not be in most compilations a generation. But I, I think in all, this reflects a different generational shift towards issues of uh, identity and class conflict, uh, gender issues. Um, so some of them fall into that category. And others are just things, um, oh, the, I thought we need to have something on manga or on the, um, you know, the various types of what can be called comic books in which there's use both of text and image. Um, so the um, the Glenn Whaley piece, I think, is really rich. Yeah, yeah I think yeah, he 
in addition to the line I just mentioned, it's called social life and custom. I think add commercial and the cultural you know, would be a better you know, generalization of character of this book. Reflecting, I think, of the, the pool of scholars um, and their interests. Actually, the book itself reflected our, you know, say, personal uh, history of in the Japanese study, as well as the connections we have had you know, over the years. Because sometimes if you invite a scholar to write a chapter, he or she would not necessarily accept. So uh, many actually are our friends, and we know, we got to know in recent decades. Harvard Reischauer Institute uh, gatherings are useful for that. <laughs> so I can oh, be quite stationary in, in meetings. But a lot of those invited, I've never met. Um, Tokita. Uh, Alison Tokita um, in New Zealand is a specialist on music and partly because I really like shamisen um, and <laughs> listen to it and, and partly because it's so important as a popular culture instrument whether in the brothels or on stage or in homes bourgeois homes shamisen is a prism through which to look at so much cultural life and the Confucian scholars comments about the twang arousing erotic thoughts it's true <laughs> but so does the electric guitar but you know that, that that's one I wanted just because it's colorful and it rounds it out. There's yeah, a, it was a, definitely. Gagaku in the, the, the reverse, you know, in terms of upper scale of culture, Gagaku pieces. Perhaps what you'd think you'd see in a Heian while you're talking about Gagaku in the early month. Yeah, those were some fun chapters to read. And I was very amazed um, that despite gathering all of this many scholars to contribute, some, like you mentioned, you haven't even met, you managed to uh, kind of unite. Um, um, so most of the arguments and you have this shared you have shared themes and you have a general direction so can you talk about um, some of these similarities in the arguments that were made in the chapters well as I if from my point of view and I'm sure that there are more things but for me this is the most conspicuous because I think in terms of modes of production in long durace and um, again I think that what one finds here is incipient capitalism one sees the emergence of, a, of an urban bourgeois class that sets tastes and provides markets. When you've got, um, as I mentioned in my article, uh, dry goods stores that are really acquiring the characteristics of department stores in which you pay cash down without haggling like you do in a bazaar. Um, and not only are kimono that would once have been made by uh, closed guilds of family servicing um, artisans, now they're producing from workshops for the general market. Um, so uh, not only is silk becoming a commodity, but also the labor power of the people who produce the silk, who are being now not long-term retained by households, but rather employed on written contracts for specific periods of time. But that's just, you know, my own field of inquiry. Uh, but again, if you look at sumo, or if you look at popular entertainment, or the marketing books, or even the types of religiosity that prevail, it all reflects this market, this expanding market. And the paradox is that this is in a time when Japan is supposed to to be closed off from the outside world, which would mean that it's becoming one of the more advanced countries on the planet without being a party to globalization. So there's some, you know, contemporarily interesting puzzles to work out with reference to that example. That's just a long response to what are the themes I see, but, but you know, this is one. I think that, that so many of the articles are acknowledging how money is increasingly mediating issues. I think some may wonder why in the last, you know, section, the epilogue, 
five articles, but uh, I think it's a good, you know, uh, structure. Two of them actually uh, addresses the, <coughs> the collapse of Tokunga Shogunate and the Meiji Restoration. And the key persons like Yoshida Shoyin and the Katsukaishu and the Yokoi Shona, as well as Shinsengu being killed. Another uh, two articles actually uh, address the uh, issues of how the feudalism to meritocracy appeared, the tendency mm. appeared in the uh, Tokunawa ruling class, which is samurai. And also, uh, my own article deal with the four major leaders in different period, <coughs> different er- <coughs> areas, meaning the cultural, economic, and the political and education, how their personal learning and education in their formative years could happen <coughs> out to play a great role in the major period. So I think uh, this volume also concerned very much about the continuity and discontinuity between the early modern and modern times. That actually brings um, me to the next question, which is how do these chapters approach the problem of periodization between the so-called early modern and modern times? Because usually, um, well, at least for historians, uh, when we talk about the Tokugawa period, it's usually referred to as early modern, whereas Meiji would be seen as the beginning of Japan's modern time. But um, there have been a lot of questions on this kind of uh, clear-cut view. So mm-hmm. how do the chapters of your book uh, approach the question of periodization? I'd like to say something, um, just to observe that there's a kind of symmetry in beginning the book with um, articles that uh, explain how the early modern order, in the sense of the Pax Tobawa, takes shape. But also beyond that, um, looking back to Oda Nobunaga and Toyotomi Hideyoshi. So really the early modern period, as I see it, and as many historians see, begins in 1568 um, with uh, Oda Nobunaga's appearance in Kyoto soon thereafter. But the three unifiers are this transitional and it's absolutely necessary to begin with, as we do, to, to look at the Tokugawa achievement, not as something that happened uh, suddenly, but as the cumulative um, result of the three unifiers. And then at the end, we kind of straddle the modern. So we go from the medieval to the early modern to the to the modern period. That's the beauty of the Tokugawa. But we also have to look at the pre-Tokugawa aspect, the early modern period. And you see the uh, extensive attention given to Hideyoshi and to the war in Korea. So I mean, so I, I think there's a kind of logic in that um, organization. I had thought the, sub, uh, the subtitle would be After Tokugawa World, um, Japan 1568 to 1868, which is a nice 300 years, easy to remember, and it's true. But it's kind of jarring to see Tokugawa and then see 1568, so we do that. And for Dr. Tao, from your uh, perspective of um, intellectual history, how would you see this book's approaching to um, the question of periodization? Yeah, uh, actually, in terms of level of synology, uh, the Tokunga period reached the peak uh, of the whole Japanese history in terms of uh, education and uh, dissemination of uh, Confucian scholarship. Uh, and uh, it lasted into almost up until, I think, to the Taisho period. From Taisho period, uh, the general knowledge about synology in Japan began to decline. Yeah, <laughs> some of the, you know, <laughs> uh, extremely you know, sophisticated scholar. They had a family ba- uh, background of synology, and also they uh, were inspired for the Chinese scholarship, contemporary ja- Chinese scholarship, with the personal uh, contacts with the Chinese scholars, because this was not um, <coughs> available, you know, uh, before uh, in the Tokunga period. They could only, you know, get knowledge from books, but not from direct personal contacts. I think that's an important point. The book 
also makes the uh, important point that there's a variegated intellectual environment. So um, there is there's there are factions that are deeply committed to some form of Confucianism, and among them there can be rather fierce disputes. But then there are people who reject much of Chinese scholarship because they're influenced by Dangaku or um, other trends. So I think aside from emphasizing the spread of education, the spread of variety of possible um, articulated views, um, and that has something to do with the book market and you know the, the laws that allow for the pretty free circulation of literature compared with, say, France. At the same time, during the Enlightenment, you couldn't advocate atheism in Diderot's France, but you could in Japan with no problem. And just to quickly uh, fill our listeners who might not be familiar with the terminology here, uh, Sinology generally refers to the Chinese knowledge, Chinese knowledge that was introduced to Japan during the Tokugawa period, um, including things like Chinese poetry, uh, please correct me if I'm wrong, Chinese, uh, Chinese poetry, medicine, uh, Chinese classics like uh, analytics, um, the Confuci- Confucianism, Taoism, and sometimes even Buddhist texts. So this is kind of the general background of Sinology in the Tokugawa period. Uh, but back to our next question. So in your own research or from your own research focus, what aspects of the Tokugawa world were you most interested in uh, when compiling this book, uh, even if it's uh, beyond your own chapter? Well, I, I've said something about my method of selection, which basically is explaining why I'm interested in the things that I'm interested in, why questions rise in my mind. They do, but I think I have some sensibility about uh, what others also find uh, interesting, perhaps even really intrinsic, such that browsing through a book like this, they might think, oh gosh, I really want to read this one. Um, I, you know, I, I think that we should have a, um, an approach to the past, the kind of historical interest that allows us to linger on the delightful as well as the dark and the things that seem marginal and frivolous might actually be a prism through which to look at very serious things, like very bloodthirsty uh, puppet drops or, um, you know, what seem to be frivolous materials. Oh, um, the uh, the two, n- not one, but two articles on Shunga. Um, I wanted something uh, on Shunga because it's becoming an increasingly uh, well-researched, say nothing of respectable topic. I remember the days that this material was available in modern Zen, but you'd have to go through it with a razor to cut open uh, pages that were designed that way. Uh, whereas now you can publish Shunga from the, the Tokugawa period virtually without censor. But anyway, there, there's a change in the environment which allows, as uh, uh, the Japanese scholar in his text on Shunga um, points out, now people are coming to him with all these old um, you know, Shunga works. Uh, they had no idea they were so valuable. They'd be kind of an embarrassment. But anyway, uh, that's a tough uh, addressing issues of sexuality through looking at this material and thinking, what does it mean that it is commercial item available with stores? Who is consuming it? You find it's uh, women as well as men. It's samurai as well as commoners. That's that's one field I remain consistently interested in. So I'm happy that those. And what about you, Dr. Tal? Okay. Yeah. Actually, uh, the book importation was part of uh, the Sino-Japanese trade trading you know, in Tokugawa period. And uh, one of my mentors at the Kansai University, Oba Osamu, was a Japan Academy awardee. Yeah. <laughs> he studied the book censorship at Nagasaki. And because of that record, uh, so he was able to know that uh, almost uh, about 8,000 titles of uh, publications in the Qing dynasty, of which 80% were imported you know, into Japan. Mm. But not only Japan was 
receiving the Chinese books. Japan scholars, they also had a high, you know, level of say, publication skills. Later, they found they can produce better books than Chinese, and uh, they had a hope to, you know, uh, to the revised exportation to China. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there was a dynamism between the Sino-Japanese exchange in terms of book and culture. That's very interesting. So did they, uh, did they end up succeeding? Were they able to reverse the importation? Yes, yeah, some were uh, success, successful, but uh, very uh, few limited through the Chinese you know, ships which were able to come to Nagasaki mm. because uh, yeah, well, Dutch, uh, <laughs> Dutch and Chinese uh, trading ships were only two you know, say countries who were allowed to trade with Japan. So um, throughout this huge project, what kind of obstacles did you run into in the creation of this book? There are just lots of small details uh, with the project, with any project, one of this size uh, involving uh, repeated um, back and forth of big sections of the manuscript. At one point, there was a need to cut the, uh, the length and the number of photos. Um, so that was a lot of revision, a lot of busy work involving if you move a photo or if you suit it and you have to number everything else. So um, no major disasters. There was no computer failure that wiped everything out. But, but it just it was surprising that a project like this takes so long. Uh, there was a point at which I thought, okay, my work is done. <laughs> How naive I was. No, the work is endless until it's out. And even then, you know, there might be things you need to change. Typos, planned paperback much more reasonably priced, not weigh like eight pounds or whatever it is. <laughs> it's like a baby. Uh, yeah, uh, actually, uh, we are so busy in this year, right? Not only teaching, but also we are, you know, writing our own books. So, uh, oh, now, yeah, now I can be busy <laughs> with my own stuff. That's that's what that's what Marx calls non-alienated labor power. Yeah. Labor power that I do out of joy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to the information technology, so we can easily, you know, get the con- <clears throat> contact each other yeah, between uh, two of us as well as with the you know, editor at Routledge. Everything is going better until your system fails and you're unable to communicate with the person you see on the screen. <laughs> So I was quite curious um, because this volume does include a lot of uh, scholars who are based in Japan, and um, I might assume these uh, some of them were originally written in Japanese and then translated. All of them. So how? Yes, that's uh, that's very impressive, and that's um, quite rare, I'd say, in in edited volumes of Japanese history. So how was that process like? Uh, Was it difficult to involve Japanese scholars or to translate their works? and uh, do you think there are things to be improved? Or do you think uh, in the future, if you were to work on another edited volume like this, you would um, try and include more Japanese scholars, perhaps? Um, oh, I, I would like to include um, in a book on Japanese history, a preponderance of Japanese scholars. For some. Although we should recognize that an awful lot of non-Japanese are participating now in Lukugawa studies for whatever reasons they have that might have to do more with cultural interests might have more to do with the kind of world historical economic history perspective looking at the unique features of our um anyway um the, the problem wasn't uh the number of japanese scholars involved the problem is the difficulty of translating from japanese into english period and i've taken part in conferences in which to prepare a, a subsequent conference volume western scholar is paired off with a japanese scholar with the most similar interests in order to translate 
translates. But even that, um, there's a skill to translating that we don't all have. So it made more sense, I thought, we both thought, to hire professional um, translators who are also in the field or close to. Um, so that's what we did. And, um, I've been very happy with our team of uh, five different translators. But I mean, in terms of, is, is there something I would do different? Um, in, in, in this case, it wasn't clear how many Japanese we would have initially. It soon became clear we really need to have translators. We need to use part of our funds available to do that. And then uh, we realized there was no way that the budget a lot is going to do it. So we had to around money, uh, Loose Foundation and others, all, all uh, attributed and appreciated in the rest of the book. Yeah, of the five translators, two actually worked about uh, five years you know, before the project with me because we founded a society for cultural interaction in East Asia in 2009 and began to publish a society journal <coughs> annually from 2010. Uh, so uh, Janine Heaton actually is also teaching at my university. So uh, she was a PhD from Stanford and working in Japan for 30 years. So she will be you know, retiring next year. So very experienced in uh, translation. Another Alan Thwaites was origin originally a MIT uh, editor who is also over 70 years old uh, and had a background in undergraduate at ICU. So had good, you know, say very good in skill in translation. Another two, I think, uh, William Steele is a professor of ICU mm -hmm. as well as uh, his wife also joined project. Robinson is also a professor of ICU. So they are all very good, you know, uh, yeah, yeah. scholars, not only, you know, say uh, translator, they, they, they themselves were, were scholars. Awesome. And how about uh, scholars of Japan or Tokugawa from other parts of the world? Were you happy with how how much you were able to involve them? Uh, I was. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I think that uh, they basically responded to uh, the invitation the way others did and the, the whole process was the same. It was, uh, I, I guess, one takeaway for me is a uh, recognition greater than I had before, vitality of Japanese studies in Australia. I think that has to do with teaching Japanese as an option in grade school. See, they're getting really good. Um, but um, let's see. We have... Um just looking for uh, Rodem Conner, is an Israeli historian who'd written a book on, uh, I think it was originally titled uh, White to Yellow, um, Japanese oh, yeah. and the Perception of, of the West. And I, in manuscript form, just tore it up, actually. Uh, I thought, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but but I made a whole lot of, of critical comments. And uh, um, I was very pleased at how he integrated my, my comments into the final version. And I thought, maybe I'll invite him to to, to write something on the issue of ethnic perceptions of the Japanese. Um, but that was sort of an unexpected inclusion. Let's see. Um, Andrew Gersel on Shunga and Togawa, uh, Society and Culture, is one of these older British Japan scholars. Uh, Tim and Screech uh, wrote a rather interesting piece on Nihonbachi as the kind of functional equivalent of a town square in Europe. Um, let's see. Godefroy, Naomi Godefroy from Paris, writing on Ezo. I met her at Harvard, actually, and I don't really know what's going on that much in Togawa studies general in France, but I'm um, pleased to find someone's really in a topic, into a topic. Having um, spent two years in Sapporo, it's kind of close to 
my heart. But uh, let's see. Uh, I'm not sure if uh, Dermin invited others than Japanese. Any Chinese? Oh, yes. Yeah, there are two. You can speak to inviting uh, Taiwanese and uh, Yeah, PRC one Taiwanese uh, scholar, Xu Xingqing, and another Wang Ming at Osei University. So they are two Chinese-Taiwanese people joined this project. And uh, I invited Xing Hong. Ah, Xing Hong, yeah. About, yeah, yeah. Um, um, tantalizing hints of Japanese in China after the maritime prohibition. Um, again, taking that model and sort of challenging some. Yeah, uh, those scholars actually sometimes, some stage we met and impressed by their work. So we might... Yeah, it was really um, amazing to see how, how uh, in this huge volume you were able to involve so many, um, uh, such a diverse group of scholars um, from all over the world, from all kinds of um, disciplines to write on. Um, how the transformation um, and how, how the market grew in the Tokugawa period. So I really enjoyed um, most of the um, chapters. I haven't been able to finish it. It does have more than 60 chapters, um, but I will at some point. Thank you so much both for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure to My talk pleasure. to you. So how long is it going to take you to finish the whole thing? I'm just curious if I have to follow up. Oh, this book? Um, I would say another two weeks, probably. Okay, <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. And that's a fair warning for our listeners who are interested in learning about um, every single aspect of Tokugawa Japan from one book. Make sure you check out this very thick um, The Tokugawa World by Professors Deming Tao and Gary Loop. I am Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies. Stay tuned for our next episode. Mm-hmm.